God's simplicity and unity. The topic of this talk is, in fact, two topics, God's simplicity and God's unity. One of these topics is familiar even to people who are not much inclined to thinking about God in a philosophical or a theological way. That topic is divine unity, which for Aquinas means not, say, that God lacks inner conflict, but that there's only one of him, that there's only one God. This thought, as I say, is familiar, although perhaps not everyone has asked why there is only one God. The other topic, divine simplicity, is something that people not of a philosophical or theological bent are very unlikely to have given much thought to. Indeed, that is true even of many people who have given serious thought to God in a philosophical or theological way. Here, the difficulty lies not merely in finding good reasons for accepting the view in question, namely the view that God is simple. Prior to finding reasons, we have to get clear on what it even means to say that God is simple, and posterior to finding reasons, we have to face objections. Given that I have two topics to handle, you might be wondering which order I'm going to take them in. The answer is neither. Instead of treating unity first and simplicity second, or vice versa, I'm going to discuss simplicity for a while, then I'm going to take a quick sidetrack and discuss unity, then I'm going to go back to simplicity. So, what is divine simplicity? Roughly, very roughly, simplicity means non-complexity. So divine simplicity means that God isn't complex. But what is complexity? Complexity means having a multiplicity of components or parts or constituents. So, for example, I have two arms and two legs which means I have a multiplicity of parts. So, therefore, I am complex. So, therefore, I am, at least in that respect, not simple. But God has no physical parts. So, therefore, he is, at least in that respect, simple. That's to say, not complex. Twice now I have said, in that respect... It's important to realize that something can be simple in one respect, but complex in another. Angels, for example, are simple in the sense that they don't have a multiplicity of physical parts, which is obvious enough inasmuch as they aren't physical at all. But in another sense, at least from Aquinas' perspective, angels are complex. For instance, there is a difference between an angel's nature and its various acts of understanding. So, if someone asks whether something is complex or not, it's usually a good idea to ask, in what respect? It's a good idea to ask that question, but it must be kept in mind that someone might answer it by saying, in every respect. If such an answer isn't allowable, its unallowableness is something that would have to be argued for. At least for now, then... It's on the table that God isn't simple merely in this or that respect, but in every respect. Many of you are probably now thinking, yeah, that has to be where this is going. God is simple in every respect. And Aquinas does, in fact, say something along those lines, as we shall see. 
But even so, I think it's possible to overstate the case. In saying this, I mean to oppose any view that attributes to God something that I will call, rather unfairly, stark raving simplicity. (laughs) By that... I mean understanding divine simplicity in such a way that no type of complexity whatever can be attributed to a divine being in any way, no way, no how. Someone who understands divine simplicity as stark raving simplicity might be inclined to say, there are three persons in one God, therefore God isn't simple. Or, Someone who understands divine simplicity as stark raving simplicity might be inclined to say, God is simple, but Christ has parts, for example, a left hand and a right hand, so therefore Christ isn't God. Since Aquinas obviously believes in the Holy Trinity, and since he obviously believes that Christ is a divine person who has a multiplicity of physical parts, It's clear that for Aquinas, divine simplicity should not be interpreted as stark raving simplicity. But then, how should it be interpreted? That's a good question. (laughs) I want to begin by reflecting a bit more on the two problem cases just mentioned, namely the multiplicity of persons in the Trinity and the multiplicity of parts that comes with the Incarnation. As for the Trinity, I have only one thing to say. At the break, go talk to Father Dominic Legg. As for the... He knows about the Trinity. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I didn't mean just like torment someone other. I mean... <laughs> As for the Incarnation, I think the point is this. When Aquinas talks about divine simplicity, he's talking about simplicity that holds within the divine nature or because of the divine nature. So... There's something completely insane here. So, when he ex- when he endorses divine... It says excludes divine simplicity. Sorry. Okay. So, when he endorses divine simplicity, <laughs> he means to exclude any sense in which there are various parts within a divine being on account of its being divine. So, yes, Christ is divine. And yes, Christ does have human parts. And also, he is composed of two natures, but Christ is not composite on account of being divine. All the multiplicity or compositeness found in him is there not because of his divinity, but because of his humanity. So, although he is not simple, his divine simplicity is not compromised. And by the way, that gives us, in my view anyway, a reason to exercise a bit of caution when reading things Aquinas says about God in, for example, the first part of the Summa Theologiae. This holds broadly, not just about simplicity. Aquinas, in the first part of the Summa Theologiae, is not focusing on the Incarnation. And so a lot of the things that he says there are meant to apply in abstraction from the Incarnation. For example, if Aquinas says that God is not bodily, that's consistent with what he will say around 2,000 pages later, um, about Christ and the Incarnation, even though one of the things he says is that the Incarnation makes Christ bodily. Um, When Aquinas says, in part one of the Summa Theologiae, that God 
isn't bodily, he means that God isn't bodily on account of his divine nature. And he doesn't always add in that qualification. He doesn't say every time insofar as he's divine. Um, that's not, that doesn't make him inconsistent. It just means that he's trying not to be pedantic and annoying. So if divine simplicity is a claim about divine beings insofar as they are divine, what does it say about them insofar as they are divine? It says, of course, that they are not complex. But in what respect or respects? Some of this came out above. Because when I was explaining the idea that something can be simple in one respect or another, I needed to give examples of respects. But now let's go through the respects in a, most, in a more respectable fashion. In Summa Theologiae, Part 1, Question 3, Aquinas treats of divine simplicity in eight articles. And I scribbled their subject matters on the board, and you probably can't read it because it's too small and also sloppy. So there are eight articles. The last article is a bit strange. It addresses not whether God has any components, but whether God is a component of anything. That's really a different topic. But it's understandable enough why Aquinas tosses it in here. I'm not going to mention it again. Articles 1 through 6 present senses in which composition in God is to be denied. Article 1 tells us that God is not a bodily thing, not a corpus. If you are wondering what that has to do with simplicity, the answer is to say that God is not... The answer is that to say that God is not a corpus amounts to saying, among other things, that he has no physical or quantitative parts. Interestingly, partway through this discussion, Aquinas says that God is not composed of act and potency... So there, in a way, you have two respects packed into one article. Article 2 tells us that in God there is no composition of form and matter. Article 3 tells us that God is identical to his essence, which amounts to saying that in him there is nothing that doesn't belong to his essence, neither accidents nor individuating principles. So... Maybe you could put it this way, there's no difference between his essence and just him overall. Article 4 tells us that in God there's no composition of essence and existence. Article 5 tells us that in God there is no composition of genus and difference. It's wrong on the board. It says genus and species. It should say genus and difference. Um... Article 6 tells us that in God there is no composition of subject and accident. That leaves Article 7, which is, to my mind, somewhat surprising. It asks whether there is any kind of composition in God at all, or whether instead God is altogether simple. This is surprising because one might reason as follows. Either the preceding six articles list all the possible relevant kinds of composition, or they don't. If they do, then Article 7 would seem to be superfluous. Unless, perhaps, its role is to argue that the respects discussed in Articles 1 through 6 are all the respects that there are. But that is not, in fact, what Article 7 does. If, on the other hand, the first six articles don't list all the relevant respects, 
then they are superfluous. Inasmuch as Article 7 is apparently going to rule out all kinds of composition in one go, making it a waste of time to plow through the first six articles. Now, as it happens, Article 7, 7 gives five reasons for accepting divine simplicity. The first is a walkthrough of the six kinds of composition discussed in the first six articles, a walkthrough that concludes, in so many words, it's obvious that God is not composed in any way, but is altogether simple. The other four reasons do not focus on any particular respect in which God might be said to be simple, but instead give arguments for simplicity that are entirely generic. I mean, in the sense that they're sort of uh, neutral as to which respect. There's a bit more to say about Article 7, but I suspect that your eyes are glazing over already. So let me just cut to the chase scene. Article 7 says that says things about divine simplicity that weren't said in the previous six articles, mostly by way of giving new arguments for divine simplicity. But Article 7 doesn't add any respects in which God is simple. All right, if those are the respects in which God isn't composite, the respects in which he is simple, our next question might well be, why isn't he composite in those respects? That's to say, why is he simple? What reason or reasons might we have to believe in divine simplicity? To answer that question in detail would require a lot more time than we have here. As already mentioned, he gives four respect-neutral arguments in Article 7. What's more, over the course of the preceding articles, he gives no fewer than 16 respect-specific arguments. That's a lot of arguments. Each of them could, no doubt, form the topic of a lecture of its own. Um, instead, uh, then, of uh, providing you with a whole lecture series on divine simplicity, I'm just going to make two comments. First, in Article 3, Aquinas argues that God is the same as his essence or nature. Or, to put the point differently, that there is in him no composition of essentials and non-essentials. Or, to point the point or to put the point differently again, that there is in him no difference between nature and supposit. Weirdly, however, his way of arguing this relies on the fact that God is immaterial, which would seem to mean that the argument applies to angels as well. But is it really true that angels have no composition of supposit and essence, that everything in them is essential. No, it isn't, as Aquinas himself would agree. For one thing, angels have composition of essence and existence. For another, angels have composition of subject and accident. But then, if Article 3 leaves open such kinds of composition, then perhaps we have to admit that what it establishes is a lot less than what it appears to establish. This is a bit of a puzzle. You can think it over tonight when you're trying to fall asleep. My second comment about Aquinas' mode of argumentation is this. Apart from Article 3, Aquinas' way of arguing for divine simplicity focuses generally, and I, I'm fairly certain that I can say always, 
focuses on the idea that if God weren't simple, if he had components or parts or constituents or whatever you want to call them, then he couldn't be the first being, the being to which nothing is prior, which is the same as saying that he wouldn't be God. In other words, instead of arguing that God's being composite is inconsistent with his having some trait that he might share with certain creatures, such as immateriality, Aquinas, in discussing divine simplicity, usually argues that God's being composite would be inconsistent with his being divine, with his being God. Let me just mention a few examples. Aquinas says that God can't be corporeal, the first one up there, because we already know that God is the first unmoved mover, it was proved in the previous question, and an unmoved mover can't be corporeal. Aquinas says that God can't be composed of matter and form, because then he wouldn't be pure act, which he is. Aquinas says that God can't be composed of essence and existence, because then he couldn't be the first efficient cause. Aquinas says that God can't have accidents, because because then some aspect of his being would be caused, which isn't consistent with his being the uncaused cause. So my point is that apart from the puzzling Article 3, Aquinas' general strategy is to say that God is the first being in the strongest possible sense, that to which nothing is or can be prior, and then Aquinas argues for divine simplicity on that basis. Now that we have some sense of what Aquinas means by divine simplicity and why he thinks we should believe in it, we can ask whether divine simplicity raises any problems. Well, of course it does, or this wouldn't be a section of the paper, would it? (laughs) Here... Here I will focus only on two points, the first of which I will describe but not get into, and the second of which I will actually get into. The first point goes like this. God is simple, so his act of willing to create is just the same thing as God himself. But God himself exists necessarily. Therefore, his act of willing to create exists necessarily. But, if God wills to create, then of course creation will exist. Therefore, it's impossible for creation not to exist. This line of reasoning is sometimes called a modal collapse argument. The distinctions among the various ontological modalities, necessity, possibility, contingency, collapse into one great heap of necessity. Whatever is, must be. Whatever might be, must be. Whatever isn't, can't be. But that simply has to be false. Therefore, there's something wrong with the doctrine of divine simplicity. That's very, very crudely how the argument would go. To assess it, we would have to lay lay the argument out much more carefully. We'd have to make sure we were really clear on the kinds of modality at work, etc. It is a big, complicated task, 
and it leads us beyond the issue of divine simplicity in itself to ask about what makes sentences like God wills to create Socrates true. Like what makes that sentence true? Even if I had a firm position on these matters, I wouldn't have time to spell it out today. But I want you at least to know that this problem exists and it needs to be thought about. And like people write things about this. Even people in this room. Having picked up that hot potato only to put it back down right away, I want to pick up a much more manageable one. And maybe with this one I can make you some fries. This new, less hot potato can be put very simply as follows. If you just think about it for a while, divine simplicity sounds really implausible. That's the worry. (laughs) To explain what I mean, let me set the stage by talking about some non-divine being, like Socrates. Socrates is human, and so he has powers, such as the power to know and the power to will. But he is not identical to those powers. There's more to him than his knowing power. So therefore, he can't simply be that power. And likewise, Mutatis mutandis for his willing power. Further, his knowing power isn't identical to his willing power. They are two distinct powers. That all seems plausible enough, but note that to say it implies that Socrates is complex. He has a composition of accident and subject insofar as his powers are accidents, and indeed he has, so to speak, two such compositions inasmuch as he has two such powers. More, actually. But if God is simple, if God, compare that now, set Socrates aside and think about God. If God is simple, things look different and rather strange. First, we have to say that God's knowing power and his willing power aren't different from each other, but are rather the same. In God, the knowing power just is the willing power. Second, we have to say that these powers, or should we now say this power, is not distinct from him, but rather is identical to him. We have to endorse those identity claims, because otherwise we will be saying that God has components, which obviously contradicts divine simplicity. But this at least sounds strange. It sounds strange to say that for anyone... The ability to know just is the ability to will. Likewise, it sounds strange to say that for anyone, the ability to know just is that person himself. Okay, so some things sound strange, but they're true anyway, right? There are different ways to approach this. The approach I will take here is based on God's infinity, What I'm going to say is that if we think through what it really means to say that God is infinite, subsistent being, then we will be less bothered by the idea that God's powers are identical with one another and with God himself. Aquinas says that anything in which existence and essence are really distinct must have a cause something must have brought it about that that essence was actualized. But God is uncaused, so in God there cannot be a real distinction. 
between essence and existence. But that means that God is just sheer existence itself. God is ipsum esse subsistence. And if God just is sheer subsistent being, then that means that he has within himself every possible way of being actual, every possible way of existing. He exists in every possible way that anything can and in an unlimited way, an exceeding or eminent way. That's not how creatures exist. When we think of a created essence, we think both in terms of what belongs to that essence and in terms of what doesn't belong to it. But in the case of God, there's nothing that doesn't belong to it. Unlike those harried and frustrated urban professionals, he really does have it all. Now, I'm saying this because I want to get to divine simplicity. But first, I need to do something else. It's time for my promised excursus on divine unity, the uniqueness of God. Here's a Thomistic kind of argument for there being only one God. If there are two things that are really two distinct things, then what makes them distinct? It has to be that one of them has something that the other lacks. But God lacks nothing. This follows from his infinity, which in turn follows from the identity of his essence and his existence. So there couldn't be a second God. All the space is already taken up, so to speak. If God were finite, it would be different. The other God could have the properties that lie outside the borders of the first God. But given that God is infinite, There are no such borders. So there's only one God as a matter of absolute necessity. That's my little spiel on divine unity. Now let's get back to divine simplicity. God has every mode of being in an eminent way. He has all the perfections that creatures have, but in an eminent way, a higher way. It's important to add that in an eminent way part. And it's important to understand it in a strong sense in order to avoid certain silly results. It's a perfection in a squirrel to have a tail. And God has every perfection, but God doesn't have a tail. He doesn't even have an eminently bushy and shiny one. (laughs) I think it's more like this. Whatever makes tails good for squirrels, well, God has that. And he has it to the maximal degree. So if squirrel tails are for balance, and balance is part of effective action, well, God's actions are perfectly effective. If squirrel tails are to confuse attacking hawks, well, God doesn't have to worry about hawks, does he? (laughs) How can divine infinity shed light on divine simplicity. Did I say that right? How can divine infinity shed light on divine simplicity? My thought is that if we can spot lower versions of simplicity in the created order, and if we can see these lower versions as coming in degrees from, so to speak, less simple to more simple, and if we can see these degrees of simplicity 
as going hand in hand with degrees of excellence, then instead of finding it surprising that the infinite being would be simple, we'll see that we should have expected this the whole time. I'll work through two examples, one having to do with intellect and will, and the other having to do with intellect only. Sometimes I see that something is the right thing to do, and then I choose to do it, and then I do it. Often enough, these are pretty distinct operations. But when an agent is totally in control of the situation, these distinctions start to disappear. If the agent is extremely good at practical reasoning, the distinction between deliberating and choosing closes to nearly nothing. Likewise, if the agent is very skillful, the distinction between choosing and doing closes to nearly nothing. Imagine an NFL quarterback scrambling for a first down. He doesn't deliberate over whether to dodge a tackler rather than sliding, and then choose to dodge him, and then dodge him. Reasoning, willing, and executing all happen together in one rational act of artful dodging. Or, to choose a different example, people who are good at handling infants don't mull over, then decide, then soothe. They just do it. My suggestion is that there's a sense in which skillful agents don't go through the steps that the unskillful go through, only much more quickly. For the truly skillful, the various steps or sub-actions are only virtually present in one unitary act. If this is right, then it gives us a glimpse in human experience of what it might look like to have operations merging into one Now, scale this up to infinity. If you were the sort of agent who always and necessarily acted in the best possible way, then your actions would always be unitary like this, and maximally so. Furthermore, if your actions were always like this, and maximally so, then there wouldn't be room for distinguishing among your various powers or capacities for action. There wouldn't be any point to making that distinction in your case. When describing someone who never has gaps of any sort between deliberating and choosing and doing, there's no need to talk about the power to deliberate versus the power to choose versus the power to do. Here's a second example taken simply from within the realm of thought. Some of us solve intellectual problems by going through a series of steps. Others just see the answer right away. These are the people who, as we say, skip steps. And in the extreme case, they skip all the steps. What is going on here? Are they actually going through the steps only very quickly? My suggestion is that they aren't. Instead, they are actually solving the problem in a different way, a simpler way. You could say that what they do includes the steps, in as much as what they do accomplishes what the steps accomplish. But really, for them, the procedure isn't complex in the way that going through steps is complex. It's simple, non-complex. People who solve problems like this are, so to speak, very skillful intellectual agents. These are the people who, for example, don't wonder which words to use 
and how to ex- assemble them grammatically, they just say something clear and accurate. Here again, the point is that eminence and skill go with simplicity, with lack of parts, and then scale it up to infinity. You like how I make that sound easy? What, I, what I've been tr- doing for the last few minutes is trying to make it seem not so crazy that there could be an agent, God, in whom there aren't really various powers and operations. It's true, of course, that we have various powers and that we use them in a stepwise fashion to perform various actions. But even we bumbling humans, when we start getting good, find that our actions become simpler. Now, of course, this doesn't prove that God could be simple, but it takes all the edge off. It takes the edge off the worry, and that's what I'm trying to do here. To put it differently, we had arguments to the effect that God is simple, and then we had a worry, namely that that result, God's simplicity, seemed weird and implausible. But if we think more, then it starts to seem significantly less weird and implausible. And maybe that's enough to let us rest content with our earlier arguments. I want to conclude by saying something about how we talk about God. I'm thinking, of course, of Gilbert Ryle's wonderful paper called Systematically Misleading Expressions. After a bit of throat clearing and intermixed with a few silly remarks now and then, Ryle gives a nice account of how it can happen that the ways people express facts don't line up very well with the structures of the facts they mean to express. Consider the sentence, Taylor Swift is popular. Now, most people who hear that sentence understand it well enough, but a philosopher might think along the following lines. This sentence predicates of Taylor Swift the property of being popular. Therefore, there must inhere in Miss Swift a popularity accident. This would, of course, be an error. (laughs) On Ryle's account, the wise man has been fooled. The mode of expression, which takes Swift as grammatical expression, the mode of expression, which takes Swift as grammatical subject, has suggested that the fact in question consists in her having some property, where what's really going on is that there are many people, each of whom has the property of liking Taylor Swift. The sentence, Taylor Swift is popular, despite its outward grammatical appearance, really asserts that a certain property belongs to a bunch of people other than Taylor Swift. Now here, at least, Ryle is a good Thomist. Aquinas tells us from time to time that the way we talk about things doesn't always line up with the way they are. For example, he tells us that we speak of the act of creation as if it were a change, when, in fact, it isn't. The case of simplicity and complexity is similar. We speak about things in a way that suggests complexity. There's a subject, and then there's something predicable of it. We talk about Socrates that way, and in truth, he is like that. We talk about God that way, but he isn't like that. For example, we say that God is powerful, and this gives the impression that he's this being that has a certain property, namely power. 
But that's the wrong impression. God just is infinite subsisting being in which power and wisdom and everything else is included in, in an undifferentiated whole. If that's the way things are, why do we talk the way we do? After all, Ryle suggests that we should sometimes rephrase misleading expressions to keep the, four, the poor philosophers in the picture. Does Aquinas say similarly that we should rephrase the things we say about God? Mostly he doesn't. And it's worth asking why. I actually think that on one level, as a temperamental matter, Aquinas simply wasn't much of a linguistic reformer. When he thinks a phrase is misleading, he'll clarify it, but he seems happy enough to let everyone keep using it anyway, including himself. There was a time when I thought this made him a sloppy thinker, and then I realized he was, he's basically just a relaxed Italian. <laughs> but perhaps there's another reason If you try to think of how to avoid speaking misleadingly about God, you may come to the conclusion that it's impossible to do so in a way that's helpful. We start with a bunch of individual words about God. We say that he is powerful, that he is wise, that he is just, and so on. We use each of these words to convey something different. We use each of them to intimate one particular aspect of what God is. We say that he is omnipotent insofar as he can do everything. We say that he is omniscient insofar as he knows everything, and so on. Now, on the basis of certain arguments, we know that although our words for these are different and our concepts of them are different, still, they aren't different. But can we get very far in the project of reforming our language so that it conveys this better? If we tried to speak about God in a way that modeled his simplicity, what would it look like? We wouldn't say that God was wise and powerful, because that would make it seem as if his power and wisdom were distinct. Instead, we'd say that he was wise, powerful. And then, of course, there's justice and mercy to worry about. So we'd say that he was wise, powerful, just, merciful. If this makes sense, really we should just go all the way and say, God is God. And even that has the disadvantage of suggesting that there are two things that are somehow one thing. So really it would be best to just stop using sentences at all and say, God. Now, you can do that. It's a free country. (laughs) But for someone who doesn't know what God is like, it's not helpful. Not at all. Perhaps it's therefore better to stick with our ordinary language, misleading though it is. Maybe we have to accept a certain trade-off. The person who hears it said that God is wise thereby learns something important, even if there's a risk that he'll get thrown off the scent a little bit. You can always come back to him and say, Oh, and by the way, try not to forget that although when we say that God is wise, we are bringing out a different aspect of God than we are when we say that he's powerful, in God himself, these are really just all one big thing. So we use the misleading expressions 
And then we point out their misleadingness. This seems to be a better strategy, a more informative one, than trying against the grain to represent God as he really is. We can't represent God as he really is. Not in this life, anyway. Our minds can only grasp reality one slice at a time. And what's more, we are, so to speak, constrained to think of the world as consisting of objects characterized by properties. Our minds don't do simplicity. We keep bouncing around from one thing to another, trying to put them together in a way that's as true to the facts as we can manage. But maybe someday, in a very different setting, we'll be able to stop bouncing around and to be still and to know that he is God. Thank you.